Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to Monsters Who Murder. It's a very different episode this week as we look at the new ITV series, Dez, because it's focused on Dennis Nielsen, of course, and we will be bringing you our episode on Dennis Nielsen a little bit later. But Amanda Howard, the serial killer whisperer, I wanted to talk to you about this uh, miniseries because I loved it. What did you think of it? <laughs> it was absolutely thrilling. And um, the fact that we actually got a sneak peek sort of made it even sort of more <laughs> sort of thrilling. It was so wonderful to be able to see it before everyone else. And then we had to sit on it and, and only talk to each other about how exciting it was. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought it was amazing. And the team who did this, uh, also the team that did Appropriate Adult, um, which is like in my top two. So um, it, it was very well done. Well, you know, I'm a modest man, Amanda, but I did feel pretty good when you talked about it and before we'd finished recording the podcast, we had the access to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I can get access to some things, but you can get access to other things and the fact that we stopped recording our last episode purely because you were so excited. So you, guess what we got? Guess what we got? It's just so amazing. So thank you to our good friends at Stan where you can view it on Stan in Australia now and all three episodes are online and available to stream. Um, I think one of the things I thought about it, Amanda, was having done the Des Nielsen profile piece, uh, it was a few seasons ago now, but when I saw David Tennant, it was everything that I remember hearing. It was the characterisation I felt. Um, we've seen a lot of actors inherit characters, but I've really felt like no one like this. Yeah, it, it was it was so well underplayed, basically, because, I mean, we see people like we, we, we've just seen Zac Efron do Ted Bundy and, you know, I wasn't a fan, not a fan at all. And I like Zac Efron and I've seen many films on Ted Bundy, but here we have Tennant just disappearing into the ordinariness of, of this serial mm. killer. And, and this is something that we talk about a lot on this channel is that um, these these serial killers are normal. You will walk past them in the street and you won't even notice. And literally one of the first points that we see Tennant as Des, um, he's actually walking along the street and he's just normal and average and you know, he's not this scary monster with a limp and a, and a scar on his face and, and all of that disappears and it's stripped back and we actually see what these monsters really are and that is that they're actually us and they're walking amongst us and we don't even know. Well, the miniseries completely backed up what you've been saying for years and which is exactly that. They don't look like monsters. What I want to do is I want to play a couple of clips here. I want to – and we've got Nielsen and David Tennant saying the same words because you've done a lot of digging and you found these clips. So first of all, let's hear some of the actual police interview with Dennis Nielsen. So on a weekend, I would sort of pull out the floorboards and I find it totally unpleasant and get blinding drunk so I could face it and start this section on the kitchen floor. And I'd go out and be sick outside in the garden. Okay, and now this is David Tennant telling that exact same story. So, uh, at the weekend, I take up the floorboards, get blind and drunk, I could face it, and uh, put down sort of, you know, black plastic like a bin liner uh, from the mess, and I'd start the section on the kitchen floor. Amanda, the resemblance is <laughs> uncanny. It was just so amazing. I, I knew I'd heard, heard it before when I heard that first scene and Addie's dog, but, you know, and on the weekend I had to get drunk because I couldn't face this. I knew I'd heard it. And so sort of quickly I sort of rushed back through 
all the um that the, the information that we've done on on the episode and I thought aha we've heard this and so I had to find it because I knew that that quote was just like perfect so um I'm glad that we were able to sort of put this in together it's just so thrilling to see because I mean it's very easy to dismiss someone for for their characterization but this is one of those times that you go oh wow that's well done you know it's it's beyond the craft of being a a actor this is like complete immersion absolutely um and he apparently only killed four people to really get into the character they were willing. They were willing. They sacrificed themselves. Um, oh, we have many David Tennant fans on this podcast, so, so they would have probably all put their hands up. Um, I One of the things that was quite interesting, you mentioned the Bundy one. I never fear, felt like the Bundy one really explored his criminality, and yet this one did without actually being violent or taking us through the moments of his crimes. You know, we didn't see all that. But over three episodes, it still managed to be dramatic. It still managed to have big plot twists. You know, Mm -hmm. like he went from this guy who was caught then just decided to reveal everything. And as we progress, there was a power player going with him, how he manipulated the whole situation. And even though I knew the outcome, when we're in that court case in the final episode, I was still there going... Oh my God! What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, <laughs> oh, you're like me goosebumps, Robert. <laughs> it, because it, you know, like the the real life event was so amazing from the point <laughs> he was arrested. Even the idea that he wanted to get arrested, you know, like and how he planned what he would and wouldn't reveal. Um, this really was an amazing story and an interesting point narratively for the makers to pick up on his story. In what way? What? Well, you could have you could have totally been back, gone, oh, yeah, and yeah. done the violence and done the crimes because that has the gore factor. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, once he they pick up at the discovery of the bones, mm-hmm. they arrest him, yeah. and then we've got almost twenty minutes, I want to say, of just talking, mm-hmm. and yet it is. 20 compelling minutes. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, if, if, if we compare this to the Bundy film as well, they're basically the same story because uh, the Bundy film was about him being arrested and, and from there on, and this is the same thing. Now, this is something that they do more often these days. It used to be that you'd do the whole crimes and you'd yeah. see them abduct and everything. The uh, Mark Harmon, Ted Bundy film from 20 years ago does that, like you see him abducting these girls. But a lot of um, the new true crime films actually start from the point of arrest because that's when we get to know these people. That's the moment that they're sort of, sort of presented to the world saying this is who who's done these heinous crimes. Um, but whereas they went for the showpiece of Bundy with with the Zac Efron film, this time it's just like he sits there and he has no expression and it's still chilling, you know, and he's sitting there and he, and he chain smokes throughout the entire film um, series and he just says, but maybe I didn't, you know, and it's just those sorts of little things, that mm. those tiny nuances that, that that shows you what these killers do to manipulate people because you think, you know, like, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to serial killers and, and they will tell you a story and story and story and story and it's like those tropes and then I woke up, you know. This is what they do. They, they yeah. will take you along a journey and then you get to a dead end. You know, it's like those Choose Your Own Adventure books that we had as children that, um, well, some of us actually read as children, Robert, but we were <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> I was reading Doctor Who books, thank you. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and this is what serial killers do to manipulate and and um, it's not going to give away the story because most people will know the story and hopefully you've all, all seen the film as well. Um, but he even says, yeah, I said 15 and 16, that, that was just a number sort of I grabbed out, out of the air. And this is what they do. So by him um, upping his figures just by two victims, he, he makes the police scramble. Yeah. And, you know, and and when they sort of come to him and say, like, we're at the next dead end, he then brings up a name and it's a big high-profile name and it's one that, that, that we do in, in the podcast episode. And it just sort of you can see how that just goes bang and just throws the thing on its head again and, and we have 
um, the the chief inspector saying, hang on a sec, I told you not go down any more leads and now you're looking up a big high-profile case. And this is how this, this series just keeps bringing it back. Like, you know, for, for something, like if, if you were to put it as a storyboard, people would go, no, nah, no one's going to watch that. Yeah. But this film just... It just, I keep calling it a film. I'm sorry. To, to me, it's a long film split in, in, into three sections because it really plays so seamlessly. It's not, it's not like, oh, what happened there? It's just, it plays just so well. And, and we just see how, how, as you said, there's this, um, this cat and mouse game between him and DCIJ that they just sort of have to keep going against each other the whole time. And, and I knew I had recognized, um, that actor that, that, that plays DCIJ um, from, Good Omen that David Tennant's in. That's where I learned who David Tennant was. <laughs> so, I mean, there's all these weird things and I'm thinking, hang on, wasn't he the dad in, in Good Omens? And But, yet, as, as I said, I'm very late to the party in the admiration for David Tennant. And no, we so might I, get you watching Doctor Who. No. <laughs> you got to see him I've in seen, it. I've seen a few. I think might be actually his season that I did watch. The one with, I think it's Penny or someone. Rose. Rose. Hmm. Okay. Mate, I don't know. That was a blonde sidekick. That's all yeah, I remember. Rose. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I won't correct you. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I can't believe we're laughing about doing a serial killer show. But anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I totally understand how all of you, and we often talk about David Tennant in our, pod, uh, in our Patreon talks because there's lots of people who are David, uh, David Doctor Who fans, and so um, he does come up often. But um, yeah, I have that's to the say... point where your eyes glaze over and Rizzy gets a bit too excited. <laughs> no, actually, that's for that, that's a lie. She's a Matt Smith fan, to be honest. <laughs> oh, but she likes them both. We, we know that she <laughs> she's got that great big poster of the of, of the two yes. doctors together. But um, I'm sorry, Riz, that we're actually sort of describing your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you get when you join us on Patreon. Look. Uh, Amanda, it's a great series, you know, like oh, um, I, I actually will go and watch it again and I don't often do that. You can watch Dares through ITV's catch-up service in the UK or here in Australia you can watch it via Stan uh, and it's well worth looking out for mm-hmm. and having a, a watch of it because it's just brilliant. Um, Amanda, you talked about Rizzy. We <laughs> will have more video chats with our <laughs> friends through the um, podcast, through our Patreon page. Don't forget if you want to subscribe to Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Confessions, where you get episodes early and bonus content and, if you're on the right tier, video chats as well. Uh, now we're going to take a break and when we come back, an encore play of our Des Nielsen episode so you can get up to speed with the complete story. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the most talked about TV show that's not on TV. And I think you guys are amazing. With raw, honest opinions. This was not a mistake. This was a lie. Exclusive stories. Some industry insiders have been talking about this. Is that a Ben Robin Robbo exclusive? And plenty of famous faces. I'm not wasting these gold moments on 60 Minutes. (laughs) The Ben Robin Robbo Show is the new way to stream your news. This is the stuff that headlines are made of. Live every Monday to Thursday. Thursday at 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Ticker TV or Facebook and Twitter at BRR Show. Watch live or on demand. It's Dennis Nielsen was a Scotsman living in Britain who murdered 15 men over a four-year period. The low-ranking civil servant kept his victims' bodies for days, often sleeping next to them, before finally disposing of them when they began to smell. 
who disposed of those bodies by either torching them or flushing them down the toilet. Amanda, when he was a child, he lost the person closest to him. This has had a big effect on his life. Absolutely. So his, his grandfather, Andrew, he was a fisherman and um, he actually went out on a fishing trip and had a cardiac arrest and died. And for Nielsen, this created um, this whole change in his personality because um, he believed that his grandfather had died because he wanted to leave him and and his, his parents were sort of quite absent in his, his life and Andrew had taken him under his wing. So it, it was quite odd for him and he would end up dressing up like a corpse because he wanted to be like his grandfather because he actually went to a viewing of him and he thought that there was such a peace to seeing this man looking dead um, that he wanted to be the same because he thought maybe by doing that he would take him with him. Well, Nielsen actually spoke about the fact he liked to dress up like a corpse in an interview in the documentary Murder in the Mind. The making myself look dead or it's nothing to do with death itself it was making myself look as different from me as it was possible to imagine so that i could really be convincing as being somebody else um amanda so he wants to be someone else yeah well he was so lonely and he was often left to his own devices and even other people that he went to school with said that he had no friends so um his grandfather realized that this was going on and and took him under his wing um so when he did die nelson was actually told that he's gone to a better place not that he died so it, it was quite perplexing for him and, and, and he felt abandoned. So he, mm. he wanted to be with the one person in this world who loved him more than anything. And so he saw how everyone reacted to his grandfather's death and not understanding that he was dead. He just wanted to be like that and the coldness because, because he, his grandfather had died at sea and it took a couple of days to bring him back and all of that. He, he probably didn't look as pretty as, as, as some corpses do. But he, he just he thought that this was a different part of life's journey w- without understanding death. He, he, he was only six when this happened. So he, the, the play acting of being a corpse was his way to have this fantasy and this will play out for the rest of his life. Well, Nielsen joined the army where he learned to be a butcher and he could dismantle many types of meat carcasses and this would later prove, for want of a better term, helpful um, in what he did to his victims. And once he was in the army, Nielsen realised his homosexual tendencies, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he was there. He, he he didn't go into active service. He wanted to learn a trade, and this is what a lot of people did back in the in, in the fifties and sixties. Um, and so he went and became a butcher. He he learned to be a chef as well, and he become close to a couple of men there. And he was only like sixteen, seventeen when this was going on, and he realised that his um, sexual preferences were different because all these other army guys were going out and picking up prostitutes or girls in each port and he realised that he wanted other men. So he actually propositioned one guy who who was a very close friend of his and he sort of palmed him off and said, no thanks, you know, I'm, I'm not that way. And he thought that he was developing a, a, a relationship. So to be rejected again, he it absolutely destroyed mm. him. And he became a, a butt of, of jokes because, let, let's face it, 50s, 60s, homosexuality was seen as a mental illness. Um, so it sort of made him completely closed down from any sort of relationship. And, and his sexual identity is something that plays all the way through this. Well, he left the army and settled in London and actually joined the police service. It was pretty uneventful by all accounts, but a few colleagues thought some of his behaviour was a bit strange, right? Yeah, because um, they would often go to the mortuary to see like car accidents or um, suicides and things like that, just to sort of get them used to seeing dead bodies often in in ways that aren't sort of, you know, like that, that, that calmness mm. that he saw in his own grandfather. And he would actually get excited by it. And, and people would sort of say to him, you know, this is a bit strange, but he was fascinated by the dead bodies. That might be, but it wasn't enough to trigger an idea that this guy was a bit loopy, right? It was strange behaviour, but we all know colleagues who have a bit of strange behaviour. In fact, PC Roger Hearth, who was a police officer who worked with Nielsen at the time, he was shocked when he saw the news reports of Nielsen's arrest. Here he is speaking to the makers of A Mind to Murder. 
The television was going on in the background. I looked across and, and said, my goodness, that's Des Norson. I used to work with him. All these gruesome details are, are, are all unfolding. And they were all perpetrated by someone that I'd spent a year working with and sometimes socialising with. And it was very difficult to put the two together. We were both probationers together and uh, I was quite happy to go out and patrol with him and uh, I, I never felt uncomfortable with him at all. If I did, then I, uh, I would have said something. And, and some, but no, he was just an ordinary PC. You know, Amanda, the more cases we do, the more we hear this, don't we? Even police officers working with him didn't see anything too unusual and are shocked to hear of his crimes. This comes down to the compartmentalisation that a lot of killers have. Now, he worked with him before he killed, but obviously the fantasies are already playing out. But they know how to hide it. They know that what their fantasies are are unusual for everybody else, so they don't share it. I'm often perplexed, and I'm doing research for next week's case, and I'm perplexed how people find each other who have these kinks. But a lot of killers don't share it, and, and, and this is how they shock those around them. There is wives out there who find out their husbands are the most revolting sexual deviants that have ever lived, and they had no idea. And and we can see here, um, granted, uh, Huth was just a, 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 a police constable, which is sort of like your entry-level police officer, but he was completely confused when he found out that, that, that his co-worker ended up being this one of the worst um, violent serial killers in England's history. Now, Nielsen lived with a man for some time and observers say it looked like they were in a relationship, but Nielsen disputed it was ever sexual. Yes, and, and this is the most perplexing part about all of this. So um, he chose to have relationships with men instead of females, but he would actually um, lean towards more being asexual, uh, according to him. He, he claims that there was no sexuality, no, no sexual congress between the two of them. But um, police officers that watched a lot of these home videos that they did um, believe that they were living as husband and wife and so his his partner would stay home and Nielsen would go to work and be the husband and, and the provider. Um, they, you know, it, it was things like that they um, bought a dog together, they would garden together, you know, the, the, the partner would cook dinner for them and, you know, there was all of this that was going on that was a traditional relationship. But Nielsen still wanted to deny that he was gay. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the video or the film because I'd like to play a clip of Brian Masters. He's the author of Killing for Company and he talks about Nielsen's need to be in control and the anger he showed during the making of a home video. Now, this is one of the videos unearthed from 1976. This clip is from the doco A Mind to Murder. The home movie that Nelson made was, again, a perfect example of somebody who is being a control. At some point, Galichan is holding the camera, and Nelson, first of all, displays his need to control what is happening. And secondly, the anger, which is never far below the surface. I can't understand you. I ask you to fucking start filming from the feet, slowly up to the head. And you go, sit, but sit, pan. Bloody hell, don't you, don't you ever watch movies? You must see thousands of movies. You must know what it's like. They're training fucking chimpanzees at Cape Canaveral to operate a camera. Anybody can do it. He is the producer, he's the director, he is in fact the main actor in it. What else can I say? I'm so bloody annoyed, I have to think about this. Cut off. And uh, this is very, very important uh, facet of his personality. Bloody dick, cut this now. That he was, he could never be content with being someone to whom things happened. He was someone who made things happen. Cut. Um, I work in television, Amanda. I've been in charge of productions. I think there are probably some people would attest I've lost my cool during productions. Isn't that just passion? That doesn't necessarily mean serial killer. Yeah, Hopefully. But, <laughs> but 
This is for a home movie that no one else should have when seen. When it's your Obviously. art, it doesn't matter if one person's seeing it or a million people. And this is where we we, we won't agree. What but we you see... did say something very interesting because I was making this point to you and you said it's more about his controlled anger. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about that simmering fury. Now, my children know when they're in trouble and I'm quiet and don't yell and scream and, and, and go uncontrollably crazy, they know that's worse. <laughs> they know that when I am like, okay, that's what's happened. We will deal with this another day because they know that I'm so furious. I, I can't yell and scream because I will lose control. And that's what he's like. He, he's cursing and swearing at his partner because he panned the camera from, from foot to head. I'm sure that has a name. Um, too fast. And yes. he's like, you know, you've watched movies. Didn't you know how to do this artfully and beautiful? And... It just proves that he wants everything to be how he sees it in his mind's eye. And there's a lot of people out there, and I know I'm one of them. I, I have this idea, and I talk to people, but they don't understand because there's parts that I can visualise that other people can't yeah. see as we're talking about um, other projects. That um, it's it's... There's a frustration that can happen, and his his partner thinks he's he's doing the right thing. He's he's panning, seeing beauty in the person he loves, and Nelson is seeing an incompetent fool. Well, look, despite the denials from Nielsen, he was in a gay relationship, but that ended suddenly eighteen months after it started. Yeah, well, um, his his partner David Gallisham actually just left. He he just got sick of it and decided I'm over. And he it, it was so sudden that Nelson was left having no idea what had happened. He he didn't know that he was being a total asshole. He didn't know that um he was basically a verbal abusive partner. But he was and, blindsided that yeah. this guy would get up and leave because yeah. he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, exactly. So he's now left saying, you know, my grandfather left me, now my first love has left me. Mm. And so he decided, you know, well, I'll just go and find someone else and decided that, you know, now it's time to go and frequent the gay bars. Um, he would offer people to come home for drinks or um you know, offer to cook for them, being a, sh a chef from the army. Um, he would actually go out looking for homeless men, um, expecting that any sort of, you know, you know, bangers and mash will we'll, we'll do for someone who's starving. But he would um, offer them food and, and drinks, just hoping that they would come home. All right. So it's around this time that he becomes a killer. And he confesses this to police after he's been caught, obviously. And this interview that we're about to hear is actually a recreation based on transcripts and it was done for the documentary A Mind to Murder. What started you off in 1978? That's something I've never stopped asking myself. First time was uh, 30th December 1978 after a bout of drinking at the Cricklewood Arms. Closing time, I was talking to this guy and he became aware I had a bottle at home, and he came there with me. In the morning, he was lying on top of the bed, fully clothed. On one of the beds, I was on the other bed. He was dead, and I came to the conclusion that I'd killed him. Why did you come to that conclusion? Because he was dead. I got the impression that he wanted to go. I wanted him to stay. Wow. Um, a couple of episodes back, Amanda, we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer, and he pretty much said the same thing about his first victim, which coincidentally actually occurred the same year as Nielsen's first kill. Why do these killers forget the actual murder of their first victim? 
Well, there's so much going on. I mean, we're talking about a fantasy that they have um, thought about for months and years. And when it happens, there's a fear, there's a panic, there's exhilaration. It doesn't seem real. When when we have these massive life-changing moments, we, we often um, forget pieces and it becomes sort of a broken jigsaw puzzle. And so... There is moments that we remember and there's moments that we, we forget and, and they can't piece it together. Now, this is um, a way to cope sometimes because often, especially a first kill, and where we did Kemper um, last season, we talked about that he said it was so clumsy and messy um, because a lot of these killers, that the, the fantasy is often... Uh, they expected to be perfect and mm. people will always fight to live and, and and we talk about this often. So when the victim actually fights back, it becomes clumsy and they you know they that they have to do all of these things to make them get to that end point that they want. And so there's things that are traumatizing to them that they actually block out. You know, some of our most massive moments in our life, we're blocked out pieces of it. And this is what happens. Of course, at the same time, being a psychopathic serial killer, it could be just their ways of deciding to play games with the police. Well, that's an interesting point. I was going to say it was interesting that he knew that he had killed the man. You know, there was yes, no doubt in his... he didn't say it was a cardiac arrest. No, yeah. he, he knew that he had done it. Now, when Nielsen killed... He had a ritual with his victims' bodies. Yeah, he would um, bathe them, and now um, he he would often drown them in, in the bath. So the bath was already there, and he would bathe That's them. That's interesting. And he would it's clean a drowning them. when his far, grandfather died at sea. Absolutely. Now, not by drowning; it was a cardiac arrest. But uh, I, I've just yeah, that's picked a great up link, on the Robert. similarity. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because um, a, a serial killer that drowns, like he did, choke his victims, but all of them often ended up being. Um, made sure that they were dead by by um, uh, submersing their heads in, in the bathtub. And that, that's a really good link because we know that his his preoccupation with death comes from his, his grandfather's death and he was um, a seaman. So I think that's a very important part of, of his ritual. But with these victims, after he had done this and washed them, which is, again, part of the water and the, then the end game is too, but he would um, have them around the house. Like, obviously, it was usually only one victim at a time but he would have them at the kitchen table or he would have them on the lounge or in in the bed and he would talk to them he would literally come home at night and say hi honey i'm home like mm. he, he he played out this ritual and and um he would put them in in bed next to him at night in clean pajamas because he saw them as a sexual partner purely as you know like like the title of brian master's book he was killing for company well, let's have a listen to Nielsen talk about what he did with his victims. The most exciting part of the little conundrum was when I lifted the body, carried it. It was an expression of my power to lift and carry and have control. And the, the dangling element of limp limbs was an expression of his passivity. Yes. So his these two opposite things, I mean, it was my power and his passivity. The more passive he could be, the more powerful I was. Very articulate, but the use of the word power multiple times. It's a word that comes up time and time again with serial killers. Yes, because in their real lives, in in in, in the lives that they show everyone else, they usually lack power. Mm. He was a low-ranking civil servant. He only got to have the rank of, of, of police constable in, in the police service before he left. And so he he tried these regimental careers, as, a, as we said, he was in the army, but he wasn't getting the respect that he believed he deserved, and that meant that he wasn't in control and he didn't have the power. So this was his way to do it. This was his way to make sure that regardless of what happened, it was on his terms and his rules. Now, Nielsen's third victim was also his youngest, 16-year-old Martin Duffy. Listen to what Martin's father said about his missing son on A Mind to Murder. 
Nobody bothered whether they went missing or not. That was what Nielsen said. They don't care about them. Nobody's bothered with them. They don't even look for them. How does he know? Did he know that I spent two years trying to find traces of Martin? I remember on what would have been his 18th birthday, I bought a birthday card and I sat in a cafe downtown and wrote on it as though I was talking to him. It's your 18th birthday. If this ever finds you, then, you know, where have you been? How are you? Whatever. And all that. It's just something you did just to, just to do something, I suppose. Everybody, but everybody, seems to lump them all together as homeless drifters, homosexuals, rent boys, the meat rack in London. All these phrases come trotting out again. And you think, what the hell? What? Why? Why me? That is a man who's been to hell and back. It broke my heart to hear that and hearing it again now when we play it. Um, it there's anger, there's um, pain. You know, he, he, he sat in a cafe by himself. Um, you know, you, you, I don't know, as, as a mum, I just want to hug him and, and, and tell him that it will never be okay, but it's okay to feel that pain. Um, to, to, to go on a totally different tangent, um, these the, the, these victims cause a butterfly effect. They use these killers destroy not just just the person that they kill, but there's mm. families involved, and yeah. and and they hurt longer. These people die in horrific circumstances. But that father, he's talking about you know two years later where. where the birthday card but we're actually interviewing this 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 doco was done only a couple of years ago so we're talking 30 40 years later and he and it's still you can hear that spite if if they put Mm. nelson in a room with him he would kill him but he wouldn't feel better and it's just heartbreaking that this occurs and, and and though we do profiles on these killers we never forget that there's victims in all of this and families are victims as well. Absolutely. And look, if you were looking at it straight from the profile of Dennis Nielsen, you wouldn't actually include that clip because the father doesn't actually offer any insight into the actual murders or what kind of man Nielsen was. But it's important for us to take a moment and think about the victims and think about the people left behind and the families whose lives have been destroyed. And I think that's a powerful clip. And it's also important to him that it was easy for Nielsen to write off, well, nobody cared about these people. They're all homeless men and all that kind of stuff. They, well, that's not true. You know, you took a 16-year-old boy who had a loving family, who obviously had a dad who was willing to search high and low for his son. So you can't just... In, as much as Nielsen in his head might be trying to write it off that it was the lesser of two evils, no, it wasn't. You're still an arsehole. Absolutely. Perfectly... Described there, Robert. That was absolutely exactly what we need to hear. Look, um, now to go back to the other side of it, uh, Nielsen began flushing pieces of the bodies down the toilet because of his concern from the smell of the rotting corpses. In the end, it was when I was said two or three bodies under the under the floorboards began to accumulate. That uh, come summer, it got hot, and I knew it'd be a smell problem. But uh, I thought, well, I'm going to have to deal with the smell problem. And I thought, what would cause the smell more than anything else? And I came to the conclusion it was uh, the innards, the the soft parts of the body, the organs and stuff like that. So on a weekend, I would sort of pull out the floorboards. And I found it totally unpleasant and get blinding drunk so I could face it and start this section on the kitchen floor. But that wasn't the only thing he did with the bodies, was it, Amanda? No, he makes it sound so easy and, and almost clean. But um, 
being a chef and a butcher, he knew that just sort of shoving these pieces under the floorboards was not going to make things go away. He would actually decapitate his victims and he would chop off the arms and legs and he would boil his the heads and the pieces mm. individually. So by rendering the f- flesh and fat, he could flush that easier than just chunks of, of, of meat going down to the toilet. And then he would actually burn the bones or he would throw them in the bins to be taken away way on the curbside cleanups like he he had enough forethought to know what to do with you know a hundred kilos of body yeah well i'm i'm absolutely shocked at how he talks so matter-of-factly about cutting up bodies have a listen to this clip from murder in the mind where he shows absolute contempt for the interviewer because the interviewer doesn't fully understand the process what sort of preparation would you have to make for that Preparation. Well, I mean, if you were simply to bring these um, young men's bodies into your kitchen and start to dismember them, that's going to leave an awful mess. That doesn't leave a mess. Why should it leave a mess? Well, it could, couldn't it? No, it doesn't. No. It doesn't leave a mess. You see, when, when people in death situations where a knife is involved, there's a lot of blood playing. I'd love to stab you right now. You'd stab me. The heart is pumping away. Then there'd be blood splashing all over the place. Yeah. Funny enough, in a, in a dead body, there's no blood spurts, anything like that. It congeals inside and forms part of the, the flesh and it's become slightly like a butcher's shop. There's little or no blood. So there's no, there's no problem with... You get a plastic, you know these uh, plastic bags that you have, that's yeah. line, and you slip one of those, so it forms kind of a sheet. You, you haul the body out onto the floorboards, put it on the sheet, and then cut it out. This interview is quite interesting because when you see the vision of it, he's sit- sitting back, he's relaxed, and he really seems to enjoy schooling the interviewer here, basically saying, you are an idiot. Yes, this is what serial killers like to do. Um, whilst that was playing, you and I were chatting, and I was saying that a lot of killers um, sound me out to see who mm. the smarter person is, and most of them back off when I step up to the plate. Uh, the only person that's never done that was Richard Ramirez, and he was just so revolting it didn't matter. Um, but, yes, he's, he's, he questions the interviewer like... As you said, are you an idiot? Like, you have no idea about anatomy and how the heart stops once you've killed someone. Mm. And he just... He goes on and, and as you said, he's sitting back in his seat. He's got his arm over the back of the chair and... If he could have smoked in, in in prison, which I don't think they're allowed to in England, he would have been smoking a cigarette. It was like he was having a afternoon at the pub... Um, fighting over who was the best soccer player. Yeah. It was interesting. He seemed to get a little animated with the idea of stabbing, you know, when he mentioned the stabbing with the interviewer, like almost like a threat. Yeah, he goes, you know, I'll stab you, you go stab me. I mean, he just... (laughs) It was, but but that was him bringing it back to reality for this interviewer. Like he's saying, I know that you're scared and nervous as hell to interview me, so I'm just going to tell you that basically I could stab you before anyone gets in here. Granted, there's a guy behind the camera and there's probably a producer standing behind them, but he's just reminding them in that yes. room who has the power. Yes. It's an interesting thing in the interview because the interviewer mentions the number of victims which uh, Nielsen seems to dispute and it's an it's quite interesting. Let's have a listen. Well, there were 12. There were 15 or 16. When I was at the back of the police car heading to the police station at the moment of my arrest they asked me how many of there were and I didn't really know. I just gave them a figure and uh, because I was cooperating with the police I decided I'll stick with it. Yeah. There were three, three of those victims were invented just to complement the, the continuity of evidence of the police because they to keep them happy. Hang on, so he's claiming he invented a number to keep police happy? Well, if he increases the number, one, it makes him look like a worse killer. He's The police are going to believe because, like we said with um, the Claremont case earlier, that there's this similar fact evidence. So if he says, gee, I've got, you know, 16 victims instead of 14 victims, well, it makes him look better. You know, it's, it's about exaggerating. And he then gets to have that power. So he says, oh, well, you need to go and find this guy. I'm not sure of his name, not sure where he 
he was, not sure of this, not sure of that. I forget what happened. And so then they run around like chooks with their heads cut off. Although he did Tom- remember some names, some of the full names, didn't he? Yeah, but very few. Only about three or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it ends up being eight that are still unidentified. So so what is the count? Uh, You know, for want of a better term, what is the body count? Is there an official body count? We've said 15 in this podcast, and that I I think is the actual, um, you know, accepted figure, even though he's saying 12. But with the things I'm hearing, it could be a lot higher than that, right? It could be a lot lower because at Melrose Avenue apartment block that he lived at, um, where he he was the only one that had access to the back garden with his partner, um, they were able to piece together six to eight victims. And now we know there was only about three, maybe four, at, at Cranley Gardens. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it just depends because we don't know. Because he was disposing of of the bodies, it it took forensic scientists to actually try and do these jigsaw puzzles and they couldn't determine that there was as many as he was saying. But as you said, if, if he's saying that there's 15, we can find nine, which means that there's six that we can't find. It could be 16 that we can't find. We really Mm. don't know. So let's go to the moment it all comes undone. On the 9th of February 1983, police were called to the apartment block at 23 Cranley Gardens in North London. Amanda, what led them there? Well, the day before, a plumber, Mike uh, Catram, was actually called to investigate the block drains. Now, all of the tenants had been complaining for a couple of days that the toilets weren't flushing, the sinks weren't, you know, flushing away. And they decided to write a letter to the owner of, of the apartment block to have the issues rectified. And Nielsen was the one that actually wrote the letter. <laughs> well, that's when Cratton... Well, that's when Catton had... Well, that's when Catton found something strange and he told that story to a mind to murder. I was called to 23 Crowner Gardens because it was a blocked drain. Lifting the manhole cover uh, was... Uh, the, the smell was unbelievable. I was down there at least five or six times and by that time I'd recognised you know, various body parts that were most definitely human. I then made the phone call to my boss, surrounded by the residents of the house and Nielsen. My boss said quite graphically to leave it and we would return in the morning. Now... Obviously, Nielsen knew the jig was up. What did he do that night? Well, knowing that the plumber had been and they knew that they'd found something, but nothing had changed. The toilets were still not flushing and the sinks were still backing up. So he went down to the sewer pit knowing what had happened. And um, he decided to remove all of the evidence that he could find. Now, Catton was actually um, stockpiling all of this flesh that he was finding because there was a significant amount. As I said, we're talking mm. about a man, you know, 80, 100 kilos of flesh is a lot of flesh. And um, so he sort of went down in, in the dark, no flashlight because he didn't want people to realise, though they all knew what was going on. And he sort of grabbed it. We don't know what he did with it, but he didn't leave it in the sewer pit. Well, when Catton returned the following day with his bosses, this is what happened. The following morning on lifting the manhole cover, I wasn't surprised that it was empty. It was spotless. I inserted my arm in the pipe on the house side and uh, I managed to get a strip of flesh. I mean... You know, that poor guy having to actually pull flesh out. But that's when the police were called because the body parts found in the drains led from the lavatory to guess where? Nielsen's room. Police then confronted Nielsen when he arrived home. And this is what the arresting officer, Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay, had to say about the killer on the program A Mind to Murder. He looked like Mr. Ordinary. He had a suit on, he had steel rimmed spectacles. In the context of what he'd done, he was frighteningly normal. Frighteningly normal, Amanda. This is a similar term we use a lot to describe these killers. We keep coming back to it. Extraordinarily ordinary. 
Is it this ordinariness why these people, why these killers crave so much power? Absolutely. This is this is what it is. We um, there there is many people out there that that strive for greatness. And these days, basically, you go on a reality TV and you get that greatness sort of thrust upon you. But um, that that's my indictment of, of TV reality today. Reality TV, thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, scripted television, I think they still call it. Um, but um, back then, you know, he... He, he craved attention but had no skills or, 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 or talents. And so he would thrust himself upon reality by being a violent killer. It's, it's just a pathetic part of, of, of their psyche that they believe that um, they can receive greatness by doing this. I mean, when um, we researched Dennis Rader, the same thing. When, when police said we're going to close this case as a cold case because we can't solve it, he instantly said to them, "Hey, no, I'm still here. Hello, hello." Mm. I mean, it's 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 just crazy. But you know, e- even though this was happening, the police played it very close. They that they, they didn't want people to know what was going on. I want to go back a moment to Catton, the plumber who found the um, the bodies. Basically, he sold his story, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, because the police weren't weren't sort of front page news about this, he decided he needed to tell them. He he sold his story to every newspaper, and basically one picked it up one day, and then all of the others picked it up the next day, mm. because they instantly had, which back then we even didn't know as a serial killer, but body parts in in a toilet cesspool i mean this was big news and and yeah, and course. he was frustrated that the police were hiding this stuff i mean if, if, so it if, wasn't just about making money it was actually about getting the story out there absolutely i mean we can go into conspiracies that there is a lot that we don't know out there and and um i'm one of those people that believe that we, we should be told everything and and let us decide what's going on but um Catton decided this he he decided that though he was the person who found this, he was frustrated that um, police weren't warning the public that there was this psychopathic killer out there that might be hunting his next victim. Yeah, well, when Nilsson was caught uh, and arrested, he confessed. And in this next clip from A Mind to Murder, an actor is playing the role of Nielsen as he goes through his confession. Now, he's playing it just like the killer. It's calm, it's methodical, and it's exactly like Nielsen delivered it. I understand that you told my officers that you had previously lived at Rosden Green. Yes, uh, 195 Melrose Avenue, NW2 where I occupied the rear ground floor flat with exclusive use of the garden. What will we find there? Unless the site has been completely cleared by contractors, there should be much evidence of bone ash in three locations, which are the remains of 12 or 13 people. Nielsen also confessed to the murder of Stephen Sinclair, his last victim, and it's just as chilling. Can you tell me what happened when you got back to your flat? By then it must have been after nine. We sat down and started to drink. I was drinking whiskey and he drank lager. He was later sitting in the lounge, starting to nod off. I can't remember anything else until I woke up the next morning. He was still in the armchair and he was dead. On the floor was a piece of string with a tie attached to it. I know I must have killed him. When asked why he did it, this is what Nielsen said. When under pressure of work and extreme pain of social loneliness and utter misery, I am drawn compulsively to a means of temporary escape from reality. This is achieved by taking increased amounts of alcohol and plugging into stereo music, which mentally removes me to a high plane of ecstasy, joy and tears. 
This is a totally emotional experience. I relive experiences from childhood to present, taking out the bad bits. When I take alcohol, I see myself drawn along and moved out of my isolated prison flat. I bring with me people who are not always allowed to leave because I want them to share my experiences and high feeling. Amanda, what do you make of that? I mean, do we talk about the power of passion? Um, we, we all have those moments where we think, oh, my God, this is great. Um, to, to, to use my own personal experience, last night I was actually working on a criminal case, had, had a glass of wine and I had trashy 80s music playing and I thought, this is happiness. Mm. For me, that was enough. Yes, I was still doing a massive serial killer case um, and taking photos of it, but that's a whole other issue. But there's this um, Dutch courage that happens, and Bundy talks about it, Dharma talks about it, and now we have Dennis Nielsen talking about it, where they drink to help them find that euphoric moment. Um it's it's about disinhibiting those emotions that they want to shut down the bad bits and just en- enjoy themselves. Um, you know, it, it, it creates looseness. It creates these moments that they can do what they didn't think that they could do. And there is a lot of people out there that need to drink to perform. And this is what we're seeing right here. And again, just like Dharma, Nielsen could have been caught several times. This is the most horrifying part about this, and I must admit I didn't know about this until we were researching the case. There was like three or five somewhere in in their complaints that were made to police because Nielsen would get his victims drunk and he would strangle them, but they would survive, that that they would wake up and they would make complaints about um, the assaults enforced on them and the police would sort of say, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, and and it wouldn't go any further. So it's, it's quite... In previous cases, it's been wrapped up because we're talking about homosexual experiences and it seems that the police just didn't want a bar of it. I mean, It was we, a seedy underworld. Absolutely. I mean, we're looking at it right now with the Bruce MacArthur case in Canada. Mm. You know, even today, where we think that we are m- more accepting and... You know, people are out there and we have same-sex marriages and, 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 and there's laws to, to protect our, our, our gay families. There's still a lot of issues with um, protection of, of this vulnerable um, group in our society. And, and going back to the 70s and 80s, it's, it's quite horrific. Well, we actually have audio of one of Nielsen's potential victims, Carl Stotter, he had gone to Nielsen's flat in May 1982. I was 21 when he tried to kill me. He invited me back to his place. We got into a cab and went to um, Cranley Gardens. We had a couple of drinks and uh, we listened to some music. I think it was Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman. It seemed like an old house. Um, There was sort of like um, a smell in the house, um, which I put down to age. Um, He said he had a dog, so I thought maybe, you know, doggy smells. But it wasn't sort of like anything that really sort of like bothered me at the time. Um, Obviously what I didn't realise was that there was decaying bodies in the house. We, We went to bed. There was a little bit of physical contact, not much. And he um, told me to be careful of the sleeping bag zip, which had sort of come away from the sleeping bag, um, because I might get caught up in it. I woke up with the, the, the sleeping bag zip around my neck. As I put my hands up to feel where the pressure was coming from, I thought Nelson was trying to help me out of the zip. And then the next thing I remember is being immersed in in um, cold water, um, which was when he tried to um, uh, drown me. 
I remember coming round and I had no memory of what he'd done. And he said, I got caught up in the sleeping bag zip. And I did say something about the water and he said, I had to put you in cold water because you were in shock. I was in a lot of pain. My face was slightly swollen. There was small blood hemorrhages all over my face. So I just got myself to the hospital. The doctor turned around and he said, well, I, th I think somebody's trying to kill you. And, I mean, the thing is, you know, <laughs> somebody's going to try and kill you. They're not going to let you walk out of their house. It was actually, I think, three months later when I actually started to get flashbacks. I spoke to family members, um, and we all just thought, well, you know, go and get some psychiatric help because probably my mind's magnified it, exaggerated it, and I sort of like managed to convince myself that it, it was just me. Amanda, that is horrifying to hear. What do victims go through once they realise how lucky they were? Now, Carl started that saying, when Nielsen tried to kill me. Mm. I mean, that that's hindsight, obviously. At the time, as he said, he goes through and he thought that he was sort of making something that was happening into something worse. He mm. was playing it through his mind. You know, there's PTSD that's going on there. He's, he's wondering what's going on. He has a fear of mortality thinking, what if... And yes. so all of this happens and um, it's, it's just quite shocking that, you know, he's, he's not sure because he's thinking about this when we don't know what Nielsen really is. Yes, he thinks he's misremembering, you yeah. know, like he's giving Nielsen the benefit of the doubt. But then Carl, the victim, found out something absolutely shocking. I was told afterwards that he'd actually given me heart massage and mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and brought me back to life. Nielsen claimed, because he thought what passed between us was a thin strand of love and humanity, and the police said it was simply because there wasn't enough room in the flat to, to have another body sort of like um, hidden there. Now that's messed up. There is still a process that, that happens that the killer has a victim that he thinks this is the next one I'm right to go and then he he has a reality check that goes hang on a sec where am I going to put this body because there's enough in the floor space already where am I going to put him this could be the moment I get caught so he has to make a decision does he take that risk or does he bring this guy back to life and feed him a story it's just horrifying to think that this is the process that this poor guy has to hear because the police say to him say to dennis nielsen why didn't you kill him and he goes ah oh, because i didn't have anywhere to put him because the floor space was filled amazing amazing nielsen loves publicity doesn't he you know when um he loved reading about himself. He wanted the police to correct mistakes journalists had made. Um, what was it about becoming known that he loved? Well, he believes that he's now the most important and most famous person in England. And we see it with Ian Brady, who comes slightly before him. And we see it with um, cases that come after. That um, Nielsen demanded that the police bring him the newspapers every day and he would correct them. No, that, that said April and it should have been May. And he would actually go through and change the stories and say to them, tell them what's going on because this mm. is ridiculous, this is wrong. And he wanted them to know that um, what, they, what they were reporting was not the full facts. When he went to trial for six of the murders and two attempted murders, um, he claimed mental illness and diminished responsibility. Oh, I love that they do this. It just, it, it's, it's just so frustrating because all of a sudden, you know, when we look at cases like Carl Stodder who was revived purely because there wasn't enough space in the crawl space under his, his flat, 
he decides to bring him back. But they they, they try these defence mechanisms and this one of, oh, no, I was I knew what I was doing bringing this man back to my house. I knew what I was doing afterwards. But during the actual time that I decided to kill this person, I had no idea what I was doing because I was drunk. He was drunk. There was music playing. He, lo- he loved to blame the music. Um, but... The prosecution had his detailed confessions yes. because he had let yes. it all out. And so it, it can't work both ways. You, you can't be coherent and then incoherent at the same time. Well, on the 4th of November 1983, Nielsen was found guilty of murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment. At the time, life meant 25 years, but that was changed in 1994 to a whole life tariff by the Home Secretary. He died at the age of 72 on May 12, 2018, the day we started the Monsters Who Murder Serial Killers Confessions podcast. Horrifyingly, eight of Nielsen's victims remain unidentified. Amanda... It's another fascinating case and has gone in places we didn't expect, but he also did an autobiography. Yes, so um, there is a few people out there that were trusted confidence of the serial killer and so I'm guessing now that he has passed away in the last uh, 12 months that we may see this book be published soon. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your amazing insight once again. Next week, the case that was so bad, Amanda had to get therapy. 